Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast, where we deep dive into all things Asia and all things tech. Today, I'm joined by Oswald Yeo, a co-founder and the CEO of Glintz. Oswald, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. How are you doing? Hey, Michael. Good. Good to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Look, let's just jump right into this, and then I want to get a little bit of your background. But from your perspective, what do you think is the biggest trend in HR tech in Southeast Asia, and by definition, all of Asia? And how do you think it's shaping the labor market? Right. Remote working and remote hiring is the biggest trend that we see right now. And the way before, way before COVID started, we already had some of our employees working remotely. We were helping some customers hiring the teams. But COVID has certainly accelerated this trend that really is sort of the new normal right now. Before COVID, most of our placements and matches were local hiring matches. Jakarta to Jakarta, Singapore to Singapore. But post-COVID, most of our placements and matches are cross-border remote hiring right, right now. And do you think there's anything else that COVID accelerated? One of the things that I hear a lot from my sort of InsureTech podcast is that, you know, two years of digital transformation has happened in two months. <laughs> Certainly. I think one other trend that comes to mind is online learning. We're wow. seeing a lot of that right now amongst our user base as well. We launched a online learning product sometime in April of last year. It's called Glens Expert Classes where people can go on to our platform to give online classes. And that took off much faster than expected because of COVID, actually. Okay, I want to get to that in a little bit. But first, let's get a little bit of your background for context. And I want to get into sort of the founding story around Glintz as well, because I think it's actually kind of compelling. And, you know, my listeners in 130 countries may not have heard this story, even though you've told it before. Cool. So also here, started Glintz about five years ago with my two co-founders. And back then, when we first started a company, we're actually still just going to college. So this is actually not just my first company. This is my first job ever. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, yes. So when we first started the company, we were actually just on the way to the US for college. And the initial idea was that we would juggle both our startup and the studies. Right. That turned out to be a terrible, terrible idea because... <laughs> Five months in, we realized that neither our startup nor studies were going anywhere. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we're feeling both academically and in the startup. When we realized that we just needed to focus on one thing, we decided to focus on the thing that was more important to us, which was the startup and not the university degree. Can I, can uh, I ask you where you were all going to school? Were you going to school together or no? We we're going to school in three different places, which made running the company even more impossible. Tell me, tell <laughs> me. So where were you all going? So my co-founders were at Stanford and Wharton. I was at Berkeley. I wanted to ask you this for a long time, right? And I haven't seen this in writing. So you were at Berkeley and your co-founders yep. were at Stanford and Wharton. So it must have meant that you excelled as students prior to entering university, right? Your parents must have yep. been super proud. Your relatives must have been super proud. Even your friends may have even been a little bit envious, like, darn, I really want to go to Berkeley. Obviously, very aspirational to start your own company. But when you decided to leave... Mm. What was that conversation like with your family and your friends when you're like, yeah, Berkeley, I'm out of here. I'm coming back to Singapore to continue doing this company. It very much was a case of asking for forgiveness and not permission. Because <laughs> right. I knew that I would never get the permission from my parents to do it. <laughs> <laughs> because I was actually, you were right, because my, my parents had 
were very excited that I was going not just to Berkeley, but going to university. Yeah. Because I was the first in my family to do so. Oh, my wow. parents, oh, wow. parents came from a very humble background. They never graduated high school. So when I had the opportunity to do so, they were very happy for me. So when I decided to, to go down the path of entrepreneurship and not go to university, um, they were very surprised for sure. So it was very much asking for forgiveness rather than asking for permission. I had really made up my mind back then. Right. And did your friends also have the same conversations with their friends and family? And I'm wondering what that conversation like was among you three. Was it like, we all have to do this together or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think I was a bad influence. (laughs) (laughs) My my friends, my my co-founders' parents maybe still hate me to this day. (laughs) Denying them of the right of having a Stanford and Watson son. Right. (laughs) But no, so so it was very much, it was very interesting because the conversations that we had with our friends in the US and the conversation that we had with our friends in Singapore were very different. In the US, our friends were all like, oh, this is a great idea. We're so happy for you guys. You got some funding and you can get out of here and be a real business. Whereas in Singapore, which was very much still tech, this was about five years ago. So tech was less popular back then. So people didn't really know what startups were. They didn't know what VCs were. So all of our friends and family in Singapore reacted very differently from how our friends in the US did. They all thought that we were crazy. Right. Uh, Chinese New Year was certainly awkward because they thought that we were supposed <laughs> to be gone for four years. Right. Like four <laughs> That's what's really interesting to me is that even back in 2015, which frankly wasn't that long ago, and from my perspective, sitting in Bangkok, you know, all of the venture capitalists that had sprouted up in Singapore, all of the government support, whether through the NRF or all the other programs that they have, you know, seemed to me to be very robust. But, you know, depending on what your family is going through at the time, they may not be so well connected to sort of the venture capital space and the tech startup space. So explaining to them what's going on can sometimes get really tricky, yeah? Yeah, there were very few success stories back then. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that one of the reasons why you came back was because, and your friends in the U.S. commented on this, was because you'd been funded, right? And I remember, right, I mean, I'm obviously I've been following Glint since its founding, and I actually remember reading this story about, you know, essentially the way the story was told, three kids leave college, leave university in the U.S. to come back to Singapore to build this company called Glint's. And even I thought, like, okay, that's insane. (laughs) (laughs) But, and there was a ton of excitement in the community, not just in Singapore, but in all of Southeast Asia about the funding and all that stuff. And it was a really compelling story. But when kind of the cameras metaphorically turned off, right, and stopped filming and you had to like get down to work and get going, was there a lot of pressure on you and your teammates to to succeed? You know what I mean? Yeah, certainly. So the first few years were really difficult after we came back from the U.S. to be in the business. Yeah. Um, the initial version of Glint was a graduate jobs and internship platform right, right, right. in Singapore. So there were a few mistakes that we made there. The first was that we're running on a classifieds model. And the second was that we were only based in Singapore, which is a very, very small market of like five, six million people. So the first two years, two and a half years, we didn't really have much what they call product market fit. Um, and there wasn't really much traction. So it's a it was a long hustle. There were a few near-death experiences. We almost ran out of cash. Right. And it was only until 2018 where we decided to pack up our bags, move to Indonesia to build a business there. And also around the same time, we pivoted the business from a classified model to a transaction pay-per-hire model, where we align much more closely with our customer success because Instead of paying for an advertisement, they're paying for results. 
And so the combination of having the right geographic market of Indonesia versus Singapore and the right business model finally allowed the business to take off. But this was like three years into the business. The first three years were really difficult. There were lots of near-death experiences and kind of sleepless nights for sure. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about those near-death experiences? And the reason why is because not just in this region, but globally, all we hear really is, are these glory stories, right? About startups, yeah. but it's hard work. And particularly inside of this story where, you know, you obviously left a great education and came back, you pivoted the business model, pivoted the location and stuff. What is that feeling like as you're kind of running out of cash and you're thinking, what are we going to do? It felt really uncertain for the most part. Yeah. Um, we were sort of just feeling our way around. We didn't really know what was the next steps. I remember one point where we were running off cash and we had about two weeks worth of runway left. Right. Uh, we gathered all of our team members in the room and we said, hey, we have two weeks of runway left. Um, there is a chance that the funding round may not go through. And if that happens, this might be the end. But right. what the founders are doing is we're pouring in all of our savings, which wasn't much. <laughs> we bought <laughs> another week, maybe. <laughs> Got us another week. <laughs> but, but this is a show that we committed. And, but we wanted to be transparent for everyone. And that felt like a very scary conversation because we weren't sure how the team would react. We right. weren't sure what happened if they left as well. Um, eventually, very luckily, the team members all decided to stay on. They came to back us. They went on no pay leave for a few weeks. Good stuff. And the funding round happened just one week before the, the company was running our runway. Yeah, and I think that's one, this one kind of uncertainty where... You know, there'll be moments like this where it was like a um, near-death experience. Right. But what's interesting is throughout the first three years, we were actually default date because not only were we not profitable yet, we did not have a clear path to profitability or product market fit. So I would say that was actually the more painful part because the, the short, intense periods of running out of cash, we somehow managed to always solve them in a right. couple of weeks. But it was sort of that mid to long term uncertainty that was a bit more painful because we when we would find right business model when would the business take off. Yeah. Did you sometimes feel like you were I like to call it, at least for myself, like operating in the dark or in a vacuum where you just felt like nothing around you existed except that tried that desire and that attempt to try to find that product market fit? Yeah, very much so. That that felt like that for a long time. And then here's what I want to know, right? I want to fast forward a couple of years. You said you moved to Indonesia, you redid the business model. Obviously, it started to work for sure. And then in 2020, everything's probably going well. And then boom, COVID. COVID. Yeah. So what was the impact? And it's because you're looking at this every day, day in and day out. From your perspective, what was the pandemic's impact on the labor market and not just in Singapore, but like in Indonesia and in the whole region, actually? So it was a huge impact on the market and our business. For context, we so the business started to take off in 2018. We managed to raise a round of funding from Monks Hill Ventures, great guys in 2019. Great guys, Close yeah. in July 2019. And so quarter three and quarter four of uh, 2019, we were ramping up our sales team in <laughs> anticipation of growth in 2020. We had like a 3x growth target. We ramped up our, we doubled our sales team in two months in November and December because funding just closed and, and we we're ready to go. And just when we were all ready to grow, we had the army all built up. The pandemic hit us in quarter one of 20, 2020. And it was significant for a few reasons because one was it was it completely threw us off course. 
because we were all ready to ramp up, but now it seemed like there wasn't enough demand to justify the number of sales headcount. And two, personally for me, it was a bit scary, but also exciting because it was the first major downturn that was going through my career. I shared earlier, this was not just my first company, but my first job. So I've never seen or heard. The last time there was a crisis, I was still in school. (laughs) So, So I saw it as a great learning experience as to how a founder or how a CEO should be reacting in times of crisis. This idea of crisis management, right, is, again, really tricky. So Matt Ward, a guy that we talked about offline, and I talked about this as well. If you've never been through a crisis in an employment situation, it's hard to figure out what the right thing is to do. And I'm wondering if the near-death experiences and all those sort of operating in a vacuum feelings that you had in 2016, 2017, and 2018 somehow prepared you for this. In other words, when the pandemic struck, you weren't like, oh my God, we could die. But okay, wait a second. How can we get through this? I would say that there's this great book by Andy Grove, the founder of Intel, called the Only the Paranoid Survive. Exactly. And I was rereading that book last year and I and I felt like it really conveyed such a useful mindset in 2020. And I think the paranoia that we had going through going through so many near-death experiences definitely helped because it pushed us to make difficult decisions a lot faster. So even before it was clear that COVID was spreading all the way in the US and also the Southeast Asia, we already started to look at our cash runway. We started to raise additional funding from our existing investors to build a more buffer. And we started to take difficult decisions like rationalizing the team. So I think having that sense of paranoia was painful, but it certainly helped us move a lot faster. Yeah, so we talked earlier, this is interesting to me as well. We talked earlier about how a lot of the feedback I get is that digital transfer, you know, two years of digital transformation is happening in two months. Do you feel like you've aged a lot or maybe grown up a lot or learned a lot in the in the past two or three years that maybe you wouldn't have learned if you had just been in school? <laughs> Definitely. I, I don't think they would have taught you how to rationalize a team <laughs> or raise emergency capital during a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they should, though, don't you think so? <laughs> maybe, maybe. I, I don't see any, many professors being able to do that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, let's let's hope they listen to from, us. Yeah, from investors, from people who have ran, other entrepreneurs who yeah. have ran businesses before. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So I want to understand, maybe in a little bit more detail, if the pandemic also accelerated any business model changes. And I'm really curious what it's like from the hiring side. Do you know what I mean? Because a lot of hiring in the past was taking place face-to-face. You'd meet somebody, they'd come back in for another interview. How have things changed for people that are trying to hire the best talent? So I think there were two biggest changes that we saw. The first was with online education. We have this business unit called Vlins Academy. Right. It's essentially a three-month coding bootcamp where we would train up fresh graduates to skilled developers to work for our clients. And before COVID, we had a one and a half to two years transformation plan to bring that from offline to online. So when that when COVID happened, we literally had to move everything online in not not even two months, but two weeks right. because the city was going to lockdown. So that certainly accelerated our our own transformation, but also the acceptance of our own users. Because before that, we would have many graduates or students who would not be so ready to to pay for a online coding course. Whereas because of COVID, that made it very normal. So that was one change that we saw. Second change that we saw with regards to hiring and the question that you saw was really remote hiring taking off. 
Before COVID, most of our matches were done as local recruitment matches, hiring in Jakarta, Singapore employers hiring in Singapore, etc. But because of COVID, cross-border hiring has taken off in a huge way. And employers who are waking up to this has really leveraged on this opportunity because Singapore employers and Hong Kong employers are no longer restricted by the high cost of labor and the low talent supply in these markets, and they can go regional. So that's really a huge trend that we see. I really want to dig a little bit deeper into this, right? Because this is this yeah. is uh, something I've been thinking about for a while. But did that surprise you? In other words, when people in Singapore were saying, you know what, there's a, and I want to talk about a talent crunch in a second, but they said, look, we can't hire enough people in Singapore to do this work. How about Vietnam? How about Indonesia? How about Malaysia? Are there candidates there, you know, that speak English or that speak Mandarin that we can hire and how can we connect to them? It actually didn't surprise us that much because to us, it has always felt like a move that makes sense because internally, even at Glintz, we build out our teams remotely as well. We have teams in Vietnam, we have teams in Indonesia. Right. But what surprised us was how quickly the adoption happened because of COVID. It always felt like an uphill conversation, especially when we were talking to more traditional companies. Exactly. So to us, it made a lot of sense, but it, it was very difficult to get some of these more traditional SMEs or even large enterprises on board with the idea. But because of whatever has happened last year, the, the adoption really shifted really quickly. Like within a quarter, our conversion rates of meetings to clients saying yes went from like 20% to 60, 70%. So yeah, there was like a three, there was like a tripling conversion rates because of the pandemic. Yeah, not surprising to me at all. Do you want to know how I collaborate with some of the best brands in the world at Asia Tech Podcast? I use Podmetrics. This is the best way to connect to your favorite brands and monetize your podcast. If you are a podcaster, you can sign up now at Podmetrics.co and use the referral code. Asia Tech Podcast, all one word, to get full control of your show's monetization, regardless of your show's size. And if you're a brand and want to collaborate with the Asia Tech Podcast, head over to advertiser.podmetrics.co, it's spelled like it sounds, and sign up now. I want to talk about this idea of what I call employment arbitrage. You know what arbitrage is, right? Yeah. So I come out of a financial services background, right? So I was a trader at, you know, at Morgan Stanley, mm-hmm. at Goldman Sachs, and at Citigroup. And whenever yeah. there's an arbitrage, what normally ends up happening, if that arbitrage is obvious, it tends to revert to a mean, right? So you can get into an arb trade, but it normally collapses. We call that mean reversion. Are you mm-hmm. seeing or do you expect to see a mean reversion in salaries? In other words, one of the reasons I'm presuming why a Singaporean company would hire somebody in Vietnam or in Indonesia outside of Singapore is because of it, it because it's less costly to do so. Yeah. But the more that happens, the more remote working becomes normal. Do you think that those salaries will then collapse to a mean and more like moving up towards the Singaporean level? Not exactly, right? Because the cost of living in Singapore is higher. But do you understand what I mean? Do you see salaries I, inching up? Yeah, great question. So yes and no, because I think it's going to be different for different types of roles. Sure. For the more senior roles where there's increasing liquidity, and if I'm a talent in Indonesia, I will have the option to work for a Singapore company or Indonesia company, or I can even be based in Singapore in the future if I want to. Right. Then certainly, yes, we see that salaries are moving up. But also no, because there are certain types of roles where the Singapore employers would almost 
over time just outsourced exclusively to to lower cost markets like Indonesia or Vietnam. For example, the entry level developer roles or like QA development, for example. Got it. So over time, they just wouldn't want to pay four to five thousand dollars a month for a QA developer in general as well. So the market or the supply market for such junior roles would probably still be limited to these regional markets, especially as it becomes a norm. Yeah. And I think these two things go together. And tell me if I'm wrong. I want to get back to Glint's Academy because you mentioned that there's a, what do you say, a three-month coding course? Are there other places where you think you can expand? And I don't mean lo- I don't mean geographical locations, but I mean the idea that you can have an academy that teaches things besides coding. In other words, is there a plan to have sort of like a, what is it, a general assembly style teaching mm-hmm. where Glint doesn't just teach coding, but maybe it teaches a whole bunch of other skills, digital skills, maybe marketing or UI design or UX design or whatever, so that when employers are ready to hire those types of people, they can get hired as well? Yeah, certainly. So two other areas we're looking at are data science and Uh digital marketing. Yeah. And the reason behind that is it's Glint's Academy. Glint's Academy's mission is to help train in-demand talent, and meaning that we take a demand-led strategy. We look at what are the fields where there is the most demand by employers. And we're seeing that there's more and more demand for, for both data science talent as well as digital marketing talent. Yeah. So the implication of that is that you're actually talking to, because it's a two-sided market, right? In, in a sense where you have people that want to get a job and people that want to hire people that want to be employed. So from the employer perspective, does that mean you're in relatively frequent contact with the employers and saying, what do you need? When will you need it? At what scale do you need it? And then how do you do your own data science around that data that you're gathering from them? So yes, we talk very frequently to employers. Um, and because we are helping them to build up their remote teams, we know exactly which are the roles that are the hardest to fill. For example, they give us out of 10 roles and we see that these three particular roles take very long to fill. Over time, consistently amongst different employers, we see that these are probably the roles that we should start building up supply for through Pins Academy. So that's how we do that. So quantitatively, we'll aggregate these signals across different employers. We see which are the roles that take the longest to fill. They have the highest latency. And that's why we see that there's a signal for, for that. The second is a bit more arbitrary, where it's just through qualitative conversations with our employers. Got it. We have hundreds of recruiters on the ground who will always be talking to them through this customer discovery interviews. And you know, we get anecdotes or we get stories about which roles are the hardest to fill or what roles they anticipate hiring for in the next six to 12 months. And we try to map that against our own tenant supply. And do you have your own data science team? And if you don't, do you think that that's something you're going to build out as well? Yeah, we do have our own data science team. It's a small team of about three to four data scientists right now. And mm-hmm. it's a team that we're looking to grow ourselves to. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to because the longer you're around, the more data you're going to have. And the more data you have, you're going to have to clean the data, have the right ML ops in place and all these other things that go around with data science. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm curious about, you know, you talked about data science, digital marketing. It sounds to me, and again, not just in this region, but globally, people are talking about this idea of like a gig worker. What role does that whole gig economy play for glints and just kind of in shaping the future of work? Mm. We have heard a lot about the gig economy and we, we see the benefits of that as well. 
Mm-hmm. But at Glimpse, we have a slightly different philosophy Tell that me. might be more contrarian, where we actually believe more in building permanent teams for our employers rather than building up, helping them to hire short-term freelance workers. Got it. Because at Glimpse ourselves, we believe that we want to hire missionaries and not just mercenaries. Right. And it's much easier to do that when we recruit people who are joining us for the long term, who believe in the mission. And from an enterprise building perspective, it's easier to build a consistent values and culture when everyone's been there for a while. So internally, we have that view. And against our customers, that's what we are focused on as well, which is to help them build out permanent remote teams or permanent teams locally rather than this short-term um, gig economy workers. We think it's a great opportunity, but it's not an area that we're focused on right now. Missionaries, not mercenaries, I think is going to be the title of this episode, if that's okay with you. <laughs> Very much so. It's just such a great phrase. In your mind, right, and also I'm asking by extension in your founders, co-founders' minds as well, is yep. there some kind of sort of social impact aspect to this as well in the sense that, you know, somebody who has a full-time job, so they're on a full-time team, may feel more secure financially than somebody who's, and I have no problem with the gig economy. It does some great things. Mm. I agree with you. But is there sort of a social impact aspect to this with you and the team thinking, if we can get people a full-time job, the benefits to not just to them, but to the economy and to society are much more longer lasting? Yes. So at, at Glimpse, our mission is to help people realize their human potential. Yeah. And we believe part of that includes just making sure that their basic needs like insurance and, and healthcare benefits are taken care of. Um, before you can think about career progression and all. And that usually comes with a full-time contract rather than a short-term gay economy contract, especially yeah. markets like Indonesia and Vietnam, where these are actually really, really important benefits for the employees. Yeah. I mean, I could not agree with you more. I mean, you know how much time I spend. I have an entire show on InsureTech. So I oh, have a, yeah, I do, it out? yeah. No, no. I have a show called the Asian InsureTech podcast. We've done a hundred and something nice. episodes and it's something that I think about in the context of any company that's building a platform, because yeah. as you know, insurance is a pooled thing. And the more people yeah. you have on your platform, the more you can offer them pooled insurance, even if yeah. they're unemployed, right? Like the problem today, you tell me what you think is that insurance in most places is tied to your employer, which feels like a weird thing to me, because if you're unemployed, you're probably more likely to need insurance than if you are employed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Anyway, and maybe that's a conversation for a different time, but you understand what I mean, right? Yeah, interesting. It's, it's a huge need, a huge pain point for a lot of people right now. I, I agree. Do you feel like, because again, you're so involved in this, do you feel like we're in this sort of massive structural transition period? I think about this a lot, like from the agrarian economy into the industrial economy, into the knowledge economy, into the service economy. I feel like we're going mm-hmm. through something right now, particularly on the employment side. I'm not yeah. even sure what to call it. I hate calling it kind of the future of work, but do you feel like we're at this sort of inf- <laughs> but do you feel like we're at this sort of inflection point? Yeah, it's certainly it's a phase shift. I'm not sure if it's as big a change as a sort of entire economy shifting, like okay. from industrial to knowledge, but it certainly is a phase shift that we're seeing from how people are working and how people are hiring. Yeah, fair enough. I want to talk about the tech that's used to do this. You know, when I was working in a corporate role, we never, ever hired anybody without a bunch of face-to-face meetings. And I feel like hiring is this sort of viscerally personal thing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like really yeah. personal. Yeah. You got to get a sense and feel of the person. Yeah. So how do you leverage technology without completely removing that sort of visceral human feeling? 
No, it's, it's really difficult. I think the fact that video communication is getting so much more reliable with Zoom and all really helps. Sure. We don't have to sort of buffer and pause every 10 seconds. <laughs> so that really helps. Uh, I remember just a few years ago, we were all, we're all still stuck in those, just can you hear me type of conversation, right? Right. right. I mean, isn't, isn't um, the first thing you say in most calls at least five years ago, can you hear me? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and throughout the call, actually. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I interrupted um, you. No, no, it works really well. So I think that helps. One thing that, that struck me, that one thing that comes to mind is actually having live events. I actually attended this live event by this self-help guru called Tony Robbins a few months ago. Did you really? A Tony Robbins event? Yeah, like he did a very impressive online event. And he would always have this massive conferences for thousands of people in person. Yeah, four or 5,000 people. Very yeah. Impressive. yeah, he managed to pull off a very impressive online version of that. He booked out a whole studio offline. Um, so it was like studio great production quality. Wow. And everyone was sort of involved and people were jumping around their living rooms and all. So I think there is a way to do it to make such event, online events engaging. But, but we'll see how things go in the next few years. Yeah, Yeah, I'm really curious to see how telepresence, haptics, all these things that tried to mimic a physical presence change the way these sort of video conferences go. I think, again, I think that's still kind of in development. But if someone like Tony Robbins, who has maybe more resources to do this than most of us can pull it off, it means that at some point that's going to drop to the bottom of the funnel and get to the rest of us, right? Yeah, it's going to, since that's going to expand to the general public, sure. Yeah, just I'm trying to figure out how that's going to work, but I guess that's again for a future conversation. You <laughs> you mentioned earlier, I think it was in July of 2019. Again, tell me if I remember incorrectly, but you were invested in by Monks Hill Ventures, yeah? Yeah, that's why we closed around with Monks Hill. So again, a super super great team. We don't have to spend a ton of time talking about them, but um, yeah, just yep. a great team. Yeah, great team. Yeah, I know them well. Anyway. You are also not just being invested by them, but you're collaborating with them. You do some research as well. Do you want to talk about that and what you expect the output of that to be or what the output of that has been already? Yeah. So one project that we're working on right now that actually hasn't been publicly announced yet, but I think will be soon. So, so it's much about right timing. It's a Southeast Asia tech talent compensation report because the common pain point that we hear amongst founders and even investors is how much should I be paying this person right, how, much question, the yeah. C, how much should a ceo of a series a tech startup be paid or series b tech startup be paid right the founders so it has been a topic that's been pretty opaque over the past few years there's not a lot of data on this right publicly available so what monks and glints are doing is we're pulling together our networks and data points because glints has over thirty thousand employees in our database right we just come up with a tech talent for southeast asia salary report so that everyone will know what's the right price to reward the attendance at. Yeah, I mean, the recruiters, at least in the financial services industry, do this at the end of every year, right? Whether it's the options group or, you know, McKinsey or any of these companies that are involved in doing research around salaries, they'll, they'll actually publish a, you know, 2020 salary summary kind of thing for exactly. investment banks, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so maybe at some point in the future, we can actually have either you or maybe somebody on your team or somebody from Monk's Hill come on and talk about that as well once it gets released. Yeah, happy to. We would we'd love to share with your listeners. Yeah, that would be super cool. So is there anything else you want to mention, something that I haven't talked about that you think is important? 
I would love to learn from your experiences, sort of seeing how things have changed in Thailand as well. That's where you're based right now, right? I am, yes. What do you want to know? Ask me anything. Just in particular on the hiring market, this, this industry we're interested in, of course, it's how have you seen things change in Thailand? So it's a really good question. And let's go back to March 15th or March 18th of last year, where yeah. we went into lockdown. I didn't leave my apartment literally except to go to the end of the street to buy food mm. at a family mart for three months, right? So I literally sat in an apartment, tried to get all my work done from March 18th until the end of June. But because, and I wasn't the only one, right? It wasn't, I don't remember if it was mandated or if just people were scared, right? So right. what that did was it really impacted the virus's ability to spread in Thailand. And you know this, right? People in Asia are used to wearing masks yeah, and nobody complained about it. So very, if you were on the BTS or if you did get into a taxi after that, everybody was wearing a mask. Nobody was moaning about it. And people did keep their distance. And it was a really great environment. Yeah. And what that means is that there was very little impact going forward after June and July on regular life. Is that fair? So like I'm sitting in my office right now in True Digital Park, and mm. it's now more full than actually it was at the beginning of last year. Wow, really? Yeah, but people still wear their masks. when I'm in an office, but when I leave my office, I put my mask on. When people use the men's room, the ladies' room, they use their masks as well. And in mm. the building here, everyone uses their mask when they go downstairs to, to get food and stuff. But it appears to me that because of that, hiring has not, it's subsided for sure between, let's say, March and September. But in Thailand, and again, this is something that most people don't know, because internet connectivity here is ubiquitous, it means that remote teams have been possible for a while now. So I'm sitting again in True Digital Park. I have 400 megabits of internet speed up and down, up and down. And a lot of the teams that have been built, so if you listen to... Any, like an interview that I did two years ago or a year and a half ago with one of the best funded companies in Thailand, they have offices in London, Portugal, and in Texas, and they've had remote teams around that forever. So I think that people here have been kind of used to that. Yes, the remote work culture has been very common in Thailand, even before 2020, right? Yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely happening before. Obviously, COVID accelerated that. Like I said earlier, it just accelerated a whole bunch of things, but I think people were comfortable with it. And the CEOs to whom I've spoken here, you know, in the insure tech space and there's the general tech space and in the VC space, and VCs have been sort of remote forever, right? Because somebody has to be in yeah. Indonesia, somebody has to be in Vietnam. But from a company standpoint and from an investor standpoint, people here are now very comfortable with this. And even in True Digital Park, the staff here is some days at home, some days here, and nobody cares. And it's been very productive as well. People have been very productive. That's great. It sounds like it's not, and it sounds like it's fuller than ever. The office. Yeah, it's really, really great. It's very dynamic. In other words, this space. I've used to work at a at a co working space called the Hive on Sukhumvit Soy Forty Nine. This is oh, a few years there, ago. Yes. Yeah, it's a great nice place. Idea. Small, on a few floors, four or five floors. And I used yeah. to walk around to each individual office and just say, "Hey, what are you working on?" If I if the sign that was on the door didn't actually explain what it was, but mm. here there are just so many teams here. 500 startups is on the floor over there. I see them here every day. There are ah. plenty of startups here. I mentor some of those startups. So to me, it's very vibrant here. Nice. Well, it sounds like Thailand has coped really well with whatever's going on. Yeah, so I don't know. And remember, you mentioned this earlier. Singapore has approximately 6 million people. Thailand has 70 million people. I think <laughs> yep. Bangkok officially has 8 million, but it's probably more like 12 million on any day, right? Because people come in mm. from the countryside. I don't know. Yeah. 
but I don't know anybody that's had COVID and I definitely don't know anybody personally that's died from it. So I don't know anybody Mm -hmm. who's been infected and I don't know anybody who's died. So to me, that's amazing. Oh, it sounds like it has dealt with the crisis really well. Similar, almost similar to Vietnam and Singapore, because we, we have a huge team in Indonesia and it's not been easy for the people on the ground there. No. So I speak to people in Indonesia every week and the teams to whom I speak, you know, they want to do business with me and they're like, can we just wait a little bit? Because my team, five people on my team actually got sick kind of thing. Wow. Oh, yeah. Right. That's not uncommon. Right. In Indonesia yeah. right now. Right. Yeah. So we're he- lucky to be where we are right now in Thailand and Singapore. Yeah, frankly, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world right now. I wouldn't definitely would not want to be in, in New York. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Okay. Anything else? What else can I tell you? Um, that's that's all. That's all the question I have for now. Would love to catch up at some point as well. Absolutely. Okay. I want to thank you then, Oswald Yeo, a co-founder and the CEO of Glintz, for coming in and doing this today. This was awesome. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Michael. It's been a great time. Yeah. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.